Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering and much more. So if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. Okay, so today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my first guest, Dr. Mary Canavan. So Mary is a leading researcher in the field of immunology and is currently a research fellow in the Molecular Rheumatology Research Group in Trinity College, Dublin. So throughout her career in research, Mary has been awarded many prestigious grants, such as those from the Irish Research Council and the American Association of Immunology. And she's also been awarded the Young Investigator of the Year in Rheumatology, not once but twice, which is no mean feat. But speaking from personal experience, um, I've known Mary for nearly four years now, and I can say that she's an excellent scientist and mentor, but also a brilliant friend. And so I'm absolutely delighted to sit down and talk to you today, Mary. So thanks a million for coming on Unraveling Science. Thank you so much, Megan. I think you should have gave me a little bit of a warning before you said all that, because now I'm a bit like, that was so lovely. Was she talking about me? <laughs> well, there was more I could have put in there now, but I had to edit it down. I was like, I want you to kind of talk us through your career, I suppose no spoilers you know so yeah I suppose firstly would you be able to just take us back to kind of what Mary Canavan was like in school were you always interested in science or did you have a different career in mind um I suppose it's probably a bit different I wasn't actually very interested in science which is quite strange um I didn't do science for my junior cert um and it was only really when I went into my transition year fourth year that um I just decided to take up biology because I, I just, you know, had another subject free and was like, I'll try it. And I was really surprised actually that I loved it. But I suppose probably like a lot of researchers, you know, as in school, I was a studier and, you know, just loved learning and was a bit of a nerd. Um, but I think that's kind of, a, kind of a similar profile to a lot of researchers, you know, you just love learning and that's kind of what draws you to it. But um, yeah, so I didn't really see myself as being a scientist when I was younger. It, I think it was just one of those things that the more I learned, that the path kind of carved out a little bit for me. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think it's hard when you're at that age. You know, I, I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. But the one thing, one piece of advice that actually my dad gave me was, he said, just follow what you love. So, you know, when you're doing your CAO, I, I just remember thinking, what's the one subject that I absolutely love? And that was biology. So I just kind of went with that. Um, and that's kind of, where it all started really yeah that's interesting actually so you just did the one science yeah no I know so when I got to college I was like chemistry and physics and so basically what happened was for leaving search understandably the school wouldn't allow me to do chemistry or physics without having done junior cert level so biology was the only one they thought I could maybe be able for so when I got to college, um, you know, everyone was like, it was very rare for people in college to have done all three, but most people had done two, a biology and maybe chemistry, biology, physics. So yeah, I found the chemistry really, really difficult. Uh, I just couldn't wait to just get rid of that. It was so tough. And yeah, physics was quite tough as well. But I suppose I didn't necessarily need them too much with the biology. I just kind of carried that forward. But uh, yeah, it was quite strange. All right. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a path that I kind of had chosen early on. Yeah, and so 
say you're in leaving cert year and you're you know looking at your CEO and like you'd said your dad had said do something that you love so you were like I'm gonna stick with biology what kind of drew you to the course that you did and I suppose tell us a little bit about that then that was in DCU wasn't it? Yeah, so I, I did this course called Genetics and Cell Biology in DCU, and it was the first year that the course had actually ran. So there was no idea of what the points were going to be. It never had never been there the year before. Um, and it was the only course that really I was drawn to because it had all the elements that I liked, you know, whereas some of the science courses were very broad and I, I wasn't sure I'd like that or else some of them were kind of more engineering plus biology, like biotechnology. And again, I just wasn't sure I'd like it. So that's the main reason I chose DCU. And also I knew that science in DCU was really good because DCU was a, it's a young university. So a lot of the facilities are really good. So yeah, that's kind of the main reason that drew me to that course. And oh, like I'm sure most people would say this after college, but I'm so glad that was the course I was in. I'm so glad that's the university I went to. I just loved every every minute of it. Like the lecturers were just fantastic. And like most universities, it's not just about the, the courses. It's to do with the, you know, the social side and the university or the societies and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was a really good fit for, fit for me, actually. Was that course mainly human focused, like, you know, human biology or was there plant, animal you know. Yeah, there was a lot of plant, animal, human, you know, I do remember at one stage we were learning something about like genetically modified tomatoes and just being like, no, this is not what I signed up for, you know, but it's four year course. So like there's so many different sides to it. So it did, it was kind of an all rounder, um, which, you know, again, I think is really important because it's very hard to kind of, you don't really want to pigeon, pigeonhole yourself so early, you know, you kind of want to see all the different aspects and then kind of decide which one you're more drawn to, you know. Yeah, and like, I suppose, from my experience, I did biomedical science in UCD. And that was, again, the reason I kind of chose that was I loved biology, I loved chemistry, but I wanted something human focused. So I kind of steered away from general science, which I knew in UCD, you did your plant biology, animal biology, and maths and stuff. And I I wasn't kind of too, too into that. But I kind of remember looking back after my fourth year and thinking, anyone who did general science kind of came out with a degree in a specific area like genetics or microbiology or physiology, whereas biomedical science was very broad. You know, we had lectures in, we were kind of half between science and medicine and even starting the PhD, which was immunology focused uh, as you know, um, I I, I was like, I don't know how how much immunology I really did in my course. I I mean, I don't think it really, you know, hindered me. You kind of start from scratch nearly with a a PhD subject anyways. But yeah, I just remember thinking that those focus course maybe might have been better. Um, I know, but you know, like, it's all about applying it though as well, isn't it? Like, so there's a lot of stuff that I would have learned as coursework, but maybe you don't really translate it that well until you actually do the lab work, because then you're like, oh, that's why we learned about that enzyme and this, why this does this. So the lab aspect, I just think is so important, which is why the fourth year projects are so great, because you really start to understand why you did some of the subjects and how you, why you learned them in that order. Because yeah, even if I came, when I came out of my degree, I, I felt quite comfortable with immunology, but as I've 
progressed through my career, I feel like sometimes I'm less comfortable now because there's so much more I realize I don't know. Whereas coming out of your degree, you're like, I knew the answer to that question. God, you know, I know that course, but you're just given a little snippet because it's obviously so large, you know? Yeah. And I think I've read some quotes somewhere and it was like, you know, as a PhD or as an academic, you're meant to be the expert in things. But sometimes throughout it, you realize, you know, very little or it kind of shows you more what you don't know rather than what you do know. Definitely. Definitely a lot of learning. So you were in your, your degree in, in DCU and then you decided to take on the PhD. Was that straight after or? No, so it was, it was straight after, but I was kind of really lucky because in uh, DCU, they do um, a work placement program for eight months. And so in my third year, I got kind of a really good opportunity to go to um, the University of Pennsylvania. And I did like a research placement there. And I think that was just a complete like game changer for me because it was only when I was in the lab that I could see myself actually working in a lab, you know, after my degree. And that's kind of where the PhD emerged because I didn't really know what a PhD was and I didn't even really know if I was capable of doing one. But it was only after being in this lab in America where, and I know you're, you're the same, Megan, you have similar experience, but you're just surrounded by so many different people, so many different expertise. It's very like fast paced and like the, it's a high learning environment and it was just, it was challenging, but it was really rewarding as well. Um, and I think that was what kind of set me up to think, I, I don't necessarily know if I thought I want to do a PhD. I remember just thinking, I want to do this, you know? And so that's, yeah, as soon as I finished my degree, I stayed on then in DCU and did a PhD there. And um, yeah, like it was such a great fit. Like it really was. Like I think I had a really, really great mentor. And I think that's like half the battle when you have someone who kind of supports you and, the project is important, but I, I, I think the mentor is probably far more important because they have to be able to kind of, you have to have to, be able to work with them and, you know, support you and you learn from them. And it's just such a, like a valuable person to have, you know, when you're going through your PhD. So, but it was really enjoyable. Like, obviously that's why I've kind of stayed in research. And I suppose throughout your postgraduate, was there anyone or even in, in your academic career to date who you kind of look back on and you say they kind of, spurred me on or, or they they encouraged me even a teacher or it's actually it's probably a bit of a strange one but it's actually a lecturer who I had and she was um a bioinformatician and she was really young but you know what you know when you're in college you don't know how young your lecturers are you know I, I just assumed she was like a lot older than us because she was so well respected and she was you know such a fantastic lecturer but I think she kind of spurred me on in some sense even though she you know wasn't in the area that I was in but it was the first kind of person who I'd seen who was really like, she was really young, but she was like top of her field, but she wasn't, she didn't ha- like, she didn't have this really strong, you know, kind of dominant lecturing personality. Like all of the lectures I'd seen were very like, you know, okay guys, this is what we're going to do. I need this done. And she was quite a timid person. And I think I would have kind of classed myself as a timid person then as well. And I kind of thought, God, you know, she's lecturing, even though, you know, she's not like really, really outgoing. And it was the first person who I remember seeing, I remember thinking, God, like, you know, not, not that I thought like I could be like her, but I just, you know, I was used to seeing a certain type of lecturer and I knew I didn't fit into that box. Whereas this person I thought I was more similar to. And I think yeah, I think it's really important when you see people like that, you know, in these kind of careers, because it makes you think, God, like maybe there is a place for me. If I'm not similar to the rest of them, maybe there is a place for me if I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, some people that you can see. Yeah. And I think as well, that's kind of 
one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast because I think you know people look at professors and you know these very accomplished people but at this end of it they're they're human and if we could kind of make that more accessible and realize for young budding scientists that yeah I could be like them they're having a chat you know they're not up in their ivory tower not that I'm saying I am or you are but you know like kind of when you get to the top I think people look maybe look at you in a different way I'm sure you're probably the same when you go to like conferences like you do you get daunted by people because you know the research that they do you know they've got really big groups and like that's definitely a barrier I think that we have because sometimes you'll be at a conference and think god I'd love to talk to that person because I think some of our data would you know fit well with their data and maybe we could collaborate but yeah you might have this little you know they're kind of quite high up and I'm not I'm maybe at the start of my career and it's it's hard like it is hard but like you said like they're they're like us (laughs) yeah exactly and and I saw something the other day it was like um a scientist doing comedy and this guy was saying his whole sketch was about at conferences where you spend the whole time trying to not pretend you're looking at the name tag of the person that's talking to you um and like it's so bad because your kind of whole tone and your the way you're speaking changes if you look down and you see a big name or to to you would be a big name but I feel like you know, at conferences, it should nearly be anom- anonymized because I remember being at a poster once and this guy was chatting to me and we were having a very normal chat and I was using quite like colloquial language. You know, I wouldn't have been, I wasn't trying to impress her. You know, I didn't know who he was. And afterwards he emailed me and I realized who it was and it was someone I was a big fan of and I nearly died. I said, oh God, yeah. like, you know, what if he thinks bad of me? But probably because I was relaxed, maybe he warmed to me a bit more. And I think that's kind of what we need, you know? Definitely, yeah. And I have literally a similar experience where there was one paper that I was kind of like, was my Bible that I was referencing the whole time, was like, I knew it inside out. And the, the first author came over to me at a, at a conference, but I didn't know, I didn't have time to look down at the badge. And so you know, she was kind of really challenging me on this. And I was like, well, there's an immunity paper and they showed this and we showed this. And she didn't say, well, that's my paper. It was only after she left and then I went into a keynote talk and I was like, I can't wait to see this keynote talk because this person, I've like literally loved their paper. And she got up and I was like, oh my God, that I've just been speaking to this woman and I can't believe that, you know, you're just paranoid and really bad. But you're right, you probably end up coming off better because you're just relaxing, you're just having a chat. Yeah, it's very true. Um, but I suppose that kind of brings me on nicely to, I suppose, would you just explain for the listeners what the field is or what immunology, I suppose, means? Yeah, so like immunology really is just the, the study of the immune system. Um, and I suppose my particular interest is in the um, immune system and how that might be involved in a disease called rheumatoid arthritis. So rheumatoid arthritis is, is it's a disease where for some reason your body starts to attack your cartilage and your joints and this causes swelling and pain and it's actually quite a, a debilitating disease. So part of kind of what I look at is there's two kind of defense mechanisms in the body of how we fight infections with bacteria and viruses. One of them is what we call the first line and that's innate, innate immunity and then there's the second line which is adaptive. So I kind of look at a cell in the uh, innate immune system. And I consider it to be very important because <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of my career looking at these cells. But really what they do is they can fight infection themselves, but um, they're kind of a really important communicator because 
the second line of, of our defense mechanisms won't do anything unless they've been told, unless they get these really specific instructions. So these cells that I'm interested in, they give feedback these instructions to the adaptive immunity and they kind of tell them, look, this is what we're facing. This is what we should do to clear this infection. So I kind of feel like they have two, two roles. They themselves kind of fight the diseases and then when they feel that they can't contain the disease, they'll then alert the second wave of cells and say, listen, you need to get ready. So that's kind of what happens in, an, in I guess, a normal response to a virus or a bacteria. But I'm kind of interested in those cells in rheumatoid arthritis because we don't know maybe, are they responding to something in our joints, in the cartilage, in the bone? Are they like unnecessarily attacking the joints and are they then you know feeding back into these other immune cells communicating with other immune cells and, and causing kind of destruction so that's that's kind of the area that I, I work in and it's challenging but like most research it is yeah I don't I, I think you know there's a definitely a role for these cells in this disease but we just don't quite know yet how, how big that role is yeah, so you're taking what you know these dendritic cells to do normally. So how they would normally fight infection would be to, to some extent, fight themselves, but then to another extent, you know, relay a message back to kind of, I like to view them as soldiers. So they're relaying it back to the special forces. They're like, right, lads, we need more kind of ammunition here. Would you come in and help fight? But in an autoimmune disease where, you know, your body mistakenly attacks itself, this happens. Um or it's dysregulated. And so in a way, you're trying to dampen that. And yeah, we're kind of trying to tell them, listen, there's no need to be alerted. There's no need to react. This isn't completely normal. There isn't a disease. There isn't a bacteria. There isn't an infection. So just kind of calm down. But we haven't found a way to calm them down just yet. <laughs> but we're exploring all options. Yeah, and, you know, because we obviously work in the same lab, for people who don't know, we work under the supervision of Professor Ursula Fearon in Trinity College Dublin, but on totally different cells. So I obviously work on macrophages, which are a different type of immune cell, and Mary works on dendritic cells. But in our work, we work mainly on uh, patient samples as well. So that's that's very important, you know, for translational uh, aspect of, of, our, of our research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just, it just shows the... The collaboration that's needed you know you get we work with such a multidisciplinary team between you know clinicians ourselves research assistants and um it's challenging because we are recruiting patients and we're looking directly in patients but also it makes it like really really rewarding because you feel like what you're seeing is, is actually happening in a person and okay it can take a long time to get a trend you know to see the same thing over over a, a large number of people but i mean that's just because we're all so different as it is but um yeah I think it is it's challenging but it's it's very rewarding like it really really is because you feel like what you're seeing is 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 really going to be impactful because you know it's come from a person you know you know it's a person who has this disease and also it's a person who has this disease but who's also given their time and given their body to research to say like you can take my blood you can take some of my tissue because it's quite selfless because it probably won't result in an additional treatment or a new target for that person. But they recognize that if they contribute to the study, then maybe in five years time or 10 years time, there might be a new treatment that can help other people coming down the line. So yeah, I I really enjoy that aspect of it actually. Yeah. And so patients who come in, they will donate their blood, which we can use. We can isolate cells and grow them. And also they'll undergo kind of a local knee scope um, and we can get biopsies um, from there. 
but also that scope is, is also used for diagnostic purposes as well. And I suppose just for people who kind of might not be familiar with the area, what impact might it, you know, studying these immune cells have on treatments maybe in the future for people with RA? Yeah, so do you know, I always kind of approach that question whenever I'm asked kind of at conferences and stuff. I suppose knowledge is power. So I don't necessarily know, are these cells going to be, are they going to be a treatment? Are we going to be able to target them? We don't know. But we know that if they're there, they're doing something. Now, maybe they're there because they're trying to prevent the destruction. Maybe they're there because they're trying to hone things back and actually maintain like normality. So I think sometimes when you're in this kind of translational field, you know, you feel like, I hope that this is a target. I hope that I can say, you know, this is going to be a new treatment. But you also have to be kind of open about where the data leads you. And maybe it won't be a new treatment, but it'll certainly help us understand what's going on in the joint, what's going on with these patients. And that can only be a good thing. And I do believe that because these cells that I'm interested in have such a strong role in, in not only activating other immune cells, but also carrying out kind of these, these destruction functions themselves, I do feel like they would be um, an appropriate target. But I guess more research would be needed, I guess, to really know what, what we kind of target. Yeah, and I think that is an important point because I think a lot of people ask me, you know, I'm sure they ask you as well. They're saying, you know, are you looking for a drug? How is this going to impact directly a patient's life? But as you said, knowledge is power. So the more we know and the more we know the kind of the mechanisms at play, the better we can inform treatment options and maybe uh, drug development. So yeah, they kind of call our research, you know, basic science. But basic science, I suppose, means we're just trying to figure out the processes that are happening at a very molecular level and very kind of focused level in our area. So I'm obviously very familiar with what your day-to-day is like in the lab, but throughout kind of the podcast, I want to, you know, interview people or get people on who are working in different types of sciences. So, you know, immunology or, or you know, cancer biology, these are kind of wet labs. So we'd be in the lab running experiments, but also people maybe working in computer science or geology or something. So just for people who are not familiar, and I know it's very varied. So kind of what would a normal day look like when we were in the lab pre-COVID-19? Pre-COVID. Um, so you kind of took the words right out of my mouth there because I was going to say it's very unpredictable. It's very variable. What can happen on any given day is, you know, I'll come into work and there'll always be, you know, laptop-based work, whether I'm writing up a paper, if I'm writing a grant, if I'm going to do a presentation for the department or whatever. So there's always something like that to do. Generally, like at very limited notice, we can get a phone call from the clinical team and say that, they have a patient and this is the diagnosis and this is the you know the biological material that they can get and do we want it Um, and we'll always say yes and we'll jump on it so that can then change the course of your entire week because you get this sample and as you know yourself and depending on how well you process the sample and how many cells you get you can then do a million other things or you can do absolutely nothing on that day so there's always an element of kind of wet lab based uh, work in every week but the kind of proportion of that would change week to week. You know, sometimes you could get lots of samples and so you end up doing a lot of things and you book onto different machines to analyze those samples. And then you can have a period where it's, it's the recruitment is slow and you don't really have a lot of samples and then you're kind of analyzing the data and kind of planning will do then when you get your next set of samples. And another kind of aspect of, I suppose, of the translational side is that you always send feedback to the patient and, Obviously, everything's anonymized, but we'll get, you know, a lot of clinical data. So 
there's continuously, you know, you're, we're in touch with the clinical team to get clinical data and feed that into our analysis and, and, and see if there's links between certain proteins and how active disease, what disease activity was like in that patient or did they respond to treatment. So and because it's so unpredictable, you know, your day always changes and your plans always change. You know, sometimes you come in on a Monday and you're like, God, this is what this week's going to look like. And by the end of the week, you could have nothing done from the list that you had on Monday, but you've done, you know, five other things. So in that way, it's, it's a great, it is a great career in that, or it's a great, you know, job. You're never really doing the same thing over and over again, because even if you're doing the same process, the samples are always different. It's a different patient. And so like you can, you can see something completely different with this process on a, on a new patient that you did the week before with a different patient. So the outcomes can always change as well, which makes it kind of more exciting as well. So in a way, it is kind of quite a um, high pressurized job at the same time. You know, you, you have to be willing to kind of drop what you're doing and go and take that sample because you know the patient has come in yeah. and, and given it. I suppose translational research is quite go, go, go. Um, and so you kind of gave us a, an overview of what your day to day would be like. But also, along with that, there is quite a lot of mentoring and maybe lecturing presentations. Do you, do you enjoy that type of role within research? Yeah, no, I do. I actually really do enjoy, I, like, I definitely love the mentoring. I, I love being in the lab. and I like, you know, I like kind of showing students the techniques and kind of talking them through it. Because generally, when I see a new student come in, I, I still always kind of see a little bit myself. Like, I, I don't feel like I have gotten that far away. Like, I still remember that feeling. And it's so hard. Like, you, it's so foreign to you. Like, everything is just, you don't know how to use the instruments. Like, the calculations are scary. Like, it, it's difficult. So I always feel like I try and give as much time as I can to students. And also, like, it's another avenue of research that you can get excited about. Like, they'll work on something that maybe you're not working on and you can kind of feed, you know, get ideas and things like that. And with the lecturing, yeah, like, I, I do like lecturing. Um, I think that there's probably not enough time to really commit to all. You know, I think sometimes I feel like if I have a lecture, I feel under pressure because I'm like, I've got a clinical sample. I have to do this lecture. And, and sometimes I can kind of find that a bit overwhelming. Um, but... I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that's probably, I don't know, but I'd imagine when you speak to like a lot of other kind of higher up professors, I'm sure they're going to say that there's like, you're constantly juggling, mentoring, lecturing, research, you know, grant writing. I think that has to be, I do, I do think it must be sort of a bit of a juggle because yeah. you're kind of trying to do all these different roles in the one role, you know? Yeah, and I suppose that kind of leads me to another question I want to ask you, which is what do you find the most frustrating or stressful part of research and then on the flip side I suppose what do you love most or what kind of drives that passion it's almost the same answer for both but like sometimes what's so stressful is the unknown and that's like you do something and you have no idea like none why you didn't get the answer you were expecting and not even you know a negative answer you know but just nothing I don't necessarily find that stressful and that I, I know that that's part and parcel of it, but I think, you know, you do have to be quite resilient in, in science because if you do have a run of these things and you're like, nothing is working, you know, everything's dying, like, my God, I just want to do a PCR and just see a curve, you know, it, it can get, that. I find that I can get to a point where I'm like, this is stressful. But on the other side of that, because you are juggling so much, there's always something else that you can be doing that you feel like you've been productive you know, so if, if the lab work didn't go very well that week or that month or 
several months, uh, which kind of happens, then sometimes you can kind of be like, well, do you know what? I got those lectures done and I enjoyed that. And I also wrote, you know, a grant and I also did this, you know. So there is a flip side that when something isn't working, you know, you do have other elements that you can focus on as well. Um, And I suppose what I love is again the unknown in that sense like I love that we don't know these things and we're like is it this will we try this will we target this and I just find that really exciting and I know that like it's not just my data you know it's you know I think as scientists we can get excited about our own data but when I see like your data when I see you know anyone present I could like even if it's a topic that I literally have no clue about I just love to see the process of well, we asked this question, does it do this? And then it wasn't this, but it could have been this. And it's kind of a puzzle. And yeah, I just think it's, I find that aspect very enjoyable. Yeah, that's actually a good point that you brought up there that you're kind of interested in other people's data as well and people in the lab, because I feel like a lot of people, you know, ask me, is it very lonely being a scientist or, you know, are you always just kind of sitting there at your bench alone? And I'm like, it's the complete opposite. It's a complete collaboration, complete teamwork. And, you know, we all, especially in our group as a translational team we have to share samples a lot and I suppose that's one of the best parts is the collaboration and having mini projects and kind of you know shooting off and saying I might work with Mary on this topic although it's not directly you know related to what I'm doing but we're we're interested to kind of work together definitely and it keeps you going because you know you can then kind of focus your attention on another little project that might work and then when it you know, you get, you start to get data. If one aspect isn't working, you, you, you're involved in a lot of different projects. So it kind of keeps your morale up, I think, if you're kind of working on different projects, different people. Yeah, no, definitely. And I suppose to go away from maybe the frustrating part, but I mean, if you're looking back, what do you think has been maybe your greatest achievement when you look back and you say, yeah, I did it. I, I'm proud of myself. So one of my greatest achievements, even though, uh, well, maybe I'll just say it. So after I finished my PhD, I found it really difficult to find a postdoc and I ended up working in a routine lab for a year and a half. And during that time, I applied for like a, an Iris Research Council grant and I didn't get awarded. That's not the achievement. But I remember like really knowing that I wanted to work in research. Like I really was, I was missing it so much. And I remember feeling this kind of panic that I'd missed my opportunity and I was never going to get back into it. So I applied for a couple of jobs and I made the decision that I was going to leave Ireland. And I know it's probably not my greatest achievement, but when I look back, I feel like that was a moment where I basically applied for a job in UCD with Ursula, Professor Ursula Fern. And I remember the day I was in my job in the routine lab and she had said, look, I'll let you know by Monday. And I remember thinking, if I get an email, it's a no. But if I get a phone call, it's a yes. And now that I know Professor Ursula Fearon, it was always going to be an email, regardless of the outcome. <laughs> my phone did not ring. Um, but I was sitting there at my desk and I got this email and it was just, and it was so like relaxed. It was like, hi, Mary, you have the job. Like, thanks kind of thing, you know. And I remember just being like, oh my God, like the absolute sheer happiness. And I know it probably doesn't sound like, well, that doesn't sound like a great achievement, but I was really proud of myself because it was hard to kind of go back and do these postdoc interviews or to write a, like a postdoc grant when I'd been out of the field for so long. And well, I felt like it was so long. And I just remember then thinking, oh my God, I've made it. Like I'm back in research, you know, I can do it. Like I can, you know, now that I have this opportunity, I, you know, and I still remember that feeling. And, and like I've had 
you know, some successes and I've obviously had a lot, a lot of failures, but I do, I just still remember that moment because even then I remember thinking, this is it. This is the break I needed just to get back into research. It was such a great feeling. No, and I think that's so important because I think when we get into research and we get on that track of academia, there's kind of this taboo subject of leaving it. You're like, no, no, you're here now. You know, you have to, if you're leaving, you're gone. You're um, gone. And I know maybe not everyone might have that opinion, but it, there's no harm in kind of leaving and experiencing industry or routine labs like what you did, because it, maybe you might realize then, actually, I really did want to go back to academia. And I suppose you're proof that you can achieve and do that. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe we always kind of, we always sometimes think the grass is always greener on the other side. And so as soon as I started my postdoc, the grass was not greener for me. This was where I wanted to be, you know, and I think from, from talking to other postdocs at the time, they'd say, you know, God, wouldn't it be great if you're in industry, you could kind of clock off at five o'clock, you wouldn't have to worry. And yeah, there was that aspect, but I knew that it wasn't as, that was not for me, you know, and I think, like you said, it, it can be very fluid. You can go into these roles. It doesn't mean that you can't then move, and I wouldn't say step back, I'd say take a step to the side and then go into a postdoc role or, you know, anything like this because, you know, it's flexible, I think. But I suppose now, how do you kind of juggle that with family life? Now, I'm looking at like other PIs and professors that are higher up than me and I I look at them and I'm like, I don't know how they do it. Like, I don't know how they do it when they have, you know, more than one and they have a couple of children and they've been so successful. I, I, I don't know if this is the right approach, but I just know I I reassess and I try not be so hard on myself. Like, I don't get as much done as I would have maybe before. But at the same time, you kind of think, how productive was I when I was coming in at eight and I could stay till 10 o'clock at night? Like, was I really getting as much done as I thought? Because especially now, when people probably understand this, during this whole COVID outbreak, you know, we're at home, but sometimes you're more productive if you're like well, four hours and I got to get it done in the four hours because after that, you know, I've no more time. So I think sometimes I've kind of just had to kind of reassess my expectations about what my normal day and my normal week is going to be and have to say no to things, which I don't like doing. And I'm, I'm not used to, I normally just take whatever I can. I'm like, I'll take that. I'll do that. I'll do that. Yeah. It, it's definitely a struggle, but it, you know, it's not something I change. I, I'd much rather be in this position. You know, it is, as you said, it's, it's a great position to be in. And I suppose one of my kind of final questions is, has there been any, you know, setbacks in your career or anything where you re- were like, I want to give up academia isn't for me? Um, you know, there probably hasn't been a time where I thought, that's it, you know, I have to give up. I, 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 I can't do this anymore. And only because I had been outside of research, like I've, I've done a kind of routine job. So I knew it was something I wanted to do. But I've definitely had moments where I thought, you know, can I do this or am I going to, you know, make it as they say? Um, and I've definitely doubted myself. I still, you know, doubt myself. But yeah, I don't think I've had a, a time where I thought, you know, I don't want to be in academia anymore. I've, you know, I've definitely had obstacles. Um, I was really, really sick, you know, um, like two years ago. And I remember I had to leave for, you know, I think it was a year and a half. And I remember the day where I went into the lab over the weekend, so nobody was there. And I packed up on my desk and I packed up all my stuff. And I remember just like this awful feeling of thinking, like, I hope that I get to come back. Like, I hope I get to go back to research. And obviously I did. So 
I've since kind of then I, I do feel even on the days where I'm like, oh my God, this is like, as, as you know, like cells dying and infections and stuff. I still feel like I'm in the right place that this is really what I want to do because I was really, really, you know, worried at the thought that I wouldn't come back to work and I wouldn't be able to be, you know, to work in research anymore. And I think while my kind of, sometimes I have doubt my ability, I doubt my ability, I don't necessarily doubt that that's, this is the right place for me, if that makes sense. Definitely from personal experience, watching you come back from being out and being sick for so long, it was amazing. And, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known uh, when you came back that there was any break or, or that you had been unwell and you were straight back into it. So, yeah, no. Oh, I, I didn't feel like that. I can tell you. Um, yeah, so I suppose my last question for you, Mary, would be, have you got any words of wisdom or any, any piece of advice for someone who's maybe just starting out or someone who's interested in um, academic research? Um, I suppose what I'd probably say from a practical point of view would be if you're interested in research or academia, you know, speak to different labs, you know, speak to the lead investigators in, in different labs, because I think uh, the mentor that you have throughout your training in, in research is really, really important. I think that really shapes the type of scientist that you can be. That's probably more from a practical point of view, but I guess perseverance is is what I would consider like the key. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I've taken up way too much of your time now. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. No it was great chatting to you. Yeah. I can't wait for the rest of your guests, actually. So yeah, that's it for episode one of Unraveling Science. Thank you to everyone for listening and I hope you all enjoyed it. 